Hi, everyone. Uh, as a side note, before we start today's episode, um, I am getting ready to leave Turkey in about a month or so here, a little bit less than a month. And uh, they came today, my, the movers, and packed up all my household goods. So I don't have a computer for the next couple months, probably. So I am doing all these recordings on my phone, which makes the audio quality kind of suck. So uh, sorry for that, and I hope that you will bear with me for the next month or so with this crappy audio quality until I can get my computer with my good microphone back. Have a good one. I hope you enjoy my episode today. Reformed and evangelical, confessional and missional, this is Creeds and Deeds. The word of our Lord from Psalm 44, verses 1 through 8. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Though we push down our own foes, through your name we tread down those who rise upon us, up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The promised Messiah would be the Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I imagine the country you once cherished, now divided, broken, overrun by corrupt leadership, imperiled by vast international powers, and seemingly on the brink of collapse. Imagine the best of your leaders, crippled by poor character, indecision, and unwise international alliances. The political and cultural conditions of Jerusalem in the 8th century BC were shaped by these dark concerns and provided the immediate background to the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The northern kingdom of Israel had turned against her sister to the south, Judah, in an ill-advised coalition with Syria to the north, a coalition that would lead to the destruction of both of its parties at the hand of the Assyrian army. Judah was left alone with diminishing prospects for survival. Into this desired situation, Isaiah spoke an oracle of hope about a child who would be born to the kingdom and bring national and international restoration to the world. 
The passage begins by assuring the southern audience that the northern kingdom will be included in the restoration of the exile, 9-1. The coming restoration will include all the children of Israel, even those of the tribes of the rebellious northern kingdom. For even, even for the north and its capital, Samaria, the darkness of exile will one day come to an end, and the sunrise of restoration and the new king will appear. The Gospel of Matthew shows how the kingdom re restoration comes in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the light shining in the gloom. From Isaiah's perspective, what is important is that this coming restoration will see a reunification of the two kingdoms of Israel under a king in the line of David. The child's birth will mark the end of their suffering in exile. The child in Isaiah 9 is the new king who will inaugurate the restoration period for the people of God after the long years of exile. Isaiah 9, 1-7 evokes a coronation ceremony in which royal titles are read aloud before an audience of subjects and dignitaries. In this case, each title depicts, depicts the superlative characteristics of the new regent that will serve him as he establishes his future kingdom as the light that replaces the darkness to, of the coming exile. Wonderful Counselor the meaning of this title might seem obscure to a modern audience. A counselor in this case involves a master of wisdom and its teachings. This sage counselor would have served in the court of the king, who in turn ruled as the head of the judiciary of the land. The restoration king, however, will excel in all areas of wisdom, much like Solomon of old, but himself will be the counselor of miraculous proportions whose counsel is accompanied by affirming wonders. As such, he will resolve the problem of the poor leadership of old. Mighty God. This title indicates that the king will be identified with the divine sovereign from whom his authority is derived. This king will not be like Israel's first king, Saul, who was little in his own eyes and insecurity that caused him to lead the nation toward his own, his own ends and not the ends of the land. The restoration king will be identified with the sovereign divine king from whom he and every other worldly power receives his authority on earth. Everlasting Father This title involves another feature of the throne, the king as the father of the nation. Christians will remember that the fatherhood of God is the primary theme in the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. In the prayer, the believer is encouraged to pray to God as a father whose kingdom will come and whose royal will ought to be done in the earthly as well as heavenly realm. In Isaiah 9, father language is not meant to connotate the close intimacy as much as the reverence with which one regards the king. Prince of Peace. This last title refers to the abundance and wholeness of the restoration kingdom to come. The title Prince is not necessarily a title of lesser authority in the government than king, but rather includes a larger group of ruling officials. Not only will the coming son of David be king, but he will be a ruler who ushers in a period of shalom, peace, of welfare and community, wholeness for the kingdom. Justice will be done, the poor and the oppressed will be given rest, and each will live fully and wholly toward their God-ordained vocations. 
For the prophet Isaiah, the assurance of his, this restoration kingdom and her king provided a great cause for hope and celebration. His were dark times, and they were going to become darker still. But the Lord, in his zeal, would not allow the darkness to last forever. We have much co in common with Isaiah's audience. The longer God seemed to absent in the grim realities of exile, the more audacious was the claim that a restoration king was coming. Our claim that the king is returning is likewise bold, but we know the king of whom Isaiah was speaking. We have known him, and he is coming back for us, and his return will be glorious. This was written by Dr. Scott Redd, who is the professor and associate professor of Old Testament at sorry, who is the president and associate professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He is the author of The Wholeness Imperative. Today for Learn the Faith, let's look at question 41 of the New City Catechism. Question, what is the Lord's Prayer? Answer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And scripture proof is Matthew 6, 9, which says, Pray then like this, followed by the prayer we just read. Today, for Topical Tuesday, I'm going to read something I wrote back in 2012, which is a word study on what is the church, looking at what the Bible says that the church is. So, here it comes. Church, a word study. So what is church? I had this question presented to me at work and had a debate about the word last night. So today, I did a word study on it. Here's my summary. The word church comes from the word ecclesia, which appear, only appears in the Gospels three times, but in later writings 112 times. It is used to describe everything from when Peter discovers the true identity of Jesus in Matthew 6, 8, 16, 18, to a small group of believers gathered together in a certain town or locality, as in Acts 18, 22. To its most literal meaning, a group legally summoned for a purpose, civil, legal, or military, as it is used to describe the riot at Ephesus in Acts 19, 32, 39, and 41. The word church was never used to describe a building until Codex Justinius dated it in the 4th or to 8th, or until yeah, dated in the 4th to 6th century AD, which was long after Constantine had redefi redefined the word as a civil institution. So in the Bible, there is two clear descriptions of the church. First is the universal church being the entire body of Christians, such as in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, including every believer in the world. And the second definition is the local church, which is a local assembly of believers that meet physically to worship, fellowship, teach, pray, and encourage in the faith, Hebrews 10:25. At this local level, we are to break bread together, worship, pray for each other, disciple, and strengthen one another. Although there are many local churches, we all, all are mem a member of the universal church. 
So how should the church act? What should our mission be? I found this following description and thought that it was awesome. So what is the new creation called the church? I like the suggestion of a student years ago, a combination of a colony of the kingdom and a support group. These are people gathered as in Acts 2, 42 to 47 to celebrate the sh- and share the resurrection life of their king. As in Acts eleven twenty six, they gather to learn his ways in order to represent him faithfully to the outside. And as in Acts twelve fifteen, for mutual support and prayer in the faith, face of persecution, they deliberately avoid, as in Hebrews ten twenty five, neglecting to get together, since they need help coaching and encouraging one another. And then in First Corinthians, as in First Corinthians fourteen twelve, each seeks seeking to excel in what will edify the church. As they, as in Hebrews 10.24, concentrate on prodding each other with love and good deeds. They serve as a demonstration project of the wisdom and glory of God, as in Ephesians 3.10, being built together into a permanent dwelling place for God in the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. That's quite enough to keep us all busy. And uh, my source for researching this was Christianity.about.com uh, underneath church and community and uh, a word study about the church. And then also from a WordPress article called Word Study 49, The Church. Thank you for uh, listening to this. And, um, you know, I just wanted to say on that, uh, it's interesting, I wrote that. Uh, it was back in May of 2012, so that's six and a half years ago. It's crazy. I've been a Christian for almost nine years now. I remember when I first became a Christian. It seems like it was just yesterday. But, uh, you know, when I'd wrote, written that, I gathered together with a lot of men, and we spent a lot of time uh, outside, and we even had a group called uh, the the Isaiah, or what was it? I, I don't remember what the heck it was called. But anyways, the like logo of it was is the church has left the building. And so when I wrote that, I wrote that because a lot of people think of the church as a place that you go to on Sunday or a institution. And the church is those things. Um, it's very clear that we are to be members of a local congregation and the visible church is to gather together and submit to eldership is a big thing with that. Like you can't have church just, you know, at home because you don't have eldership that you're submitting to with preaching and teaching of elders that have been ordained and sent out by God to preach the word and to watch for your souls. But the church is more than that. The church is something that is accomplishing God's mission to the world. And, um, so we get both those people, though, a lot. You know, you see the people who think they don't need to go to church because they think they can just worship God wherever. And, oh, why do I need a building or people to tell me what to do? But uh, that's important. But then you get the people, too, that just go to church on Sunday and the rest of their lives they live as though they aren't Christians. And they just don't see. They think that uh, evangelism or uh, living out God's, commission to us and being loving to your neighbor and all that is something that's specifically for uh, people like pastors and uh, deacons and all those that have been professionally uh, in the ministry, but it's not. It's for everybody. So 
this week, uh, today, and for the rest of the week, just really try to think of which one of those two do you fall more towards? Do you fall more towards the person who doesn't see a need for the church, or do you fall more towards the person who doesn't, uh, who just goes to church as an institution and doesn't realize that you're part of the church, that you're an active member in the church? And whichever one of those you are, try to bring yourself back to the center to realizing how important both of those are. Thank you for joining me for Topic Tuesday. We will see you tomorrow for Witness Wednesday. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O God, all-sufficient, you have made and uphold all things by the word of your power. Darkness is your pavilion. You walk on the wings of the wind. All nations are nothing before you. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away, like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But you, unchangeable and incorruptible, are forever and ever. God over all, blessed eternally, infinitely great and glorious are you. We are your offspring and your care. Your hands have made and fashioned us. You have watched over us with more than parental love, more than maternal tenderness. You have holden our hand, our souls in life and not suffered our feet to be moved. Your divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let us bless you at all times and forget not how you have get forgiven our iniquities healed our diseases, redeemed our lives from destruction, crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfied our mouths with good things, renewed our youth like the eagles. May your holy scriptures govern every part of our lives and regulate the discharge of all of our duties so that we may adorn thy doctrine in all things. And together with the saints we pray, our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the glory, and the power, forever and ever. Amen. Although I love to talk Although about love theology, talk about I'm not ordained and I'm not a pastor. So if you're a Christian listening to my podcast, you better be in church on Sunday.